The following program was produced by Community Producer. The content, views, and opinions expressed are the sole responsibility of the Community Producer and do not reflect Malden Access Television, the City of Malden, or your cable provider. MATV welcomes your comments. Call us at 781-321-6400 or email us at access at matv.org. Good evening, Malden. Welcome to 02148. My name is Mike Sharon. I am your host for the evening on this Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. My, oh my, the summer is flying by. Just like I told you last month after 4th of July, it's, it's all downhill. And we have had a hot summer. I mean, I, I can't remember. I, I guess it's like two seven-day heat waves uh, in the past month or so. Uh, it's been a very hot summer, but uh, some of us like it like that. And uh, you know what? The temperature's going to be rising tonight because I'm very excited to introduce my guest for the evening. She is a freelance writer. She is a journalist. She is the author of eight books, uh, all dealing with the history of Boston. Her latest effort is The Great Boston Fire, which we'll be talking about tonight, The Inferno That Nearly Incinerated the City. Without further ado, welcome, Stephanie Shoro. Oh, well, thank you very much, Mike. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, first of all, I, I, I really enjoyed this book. And, oh, it's uh, nice of you to say. Appreciate that. Yes. Um, before we get into it, and we're going to get into it, um, uh, delve into it pretty mm -hmm. good tonight, I hope, for the folks. Um, you have a connection down here. You've been, uh, right. you wear many hats. I've only named two or three of them, but That's you're right. also a teacher and uh uh, but you're you're associated with the folks down here and yes. coordinating. Yeah, I help to coordinate the um, uh, the neighborhood view, Malden's neighborhood view, the, our web, our news website, and so I work with a, a very talented team of uh, citizen yeah. journalists and yeah. um, Anderson Rose, a very talented yes. publisher, if you want to call her that with that title. But and photographers, we have some excellent photographers yes. on the on that site. And what we're trying to do is. Um, cover Malden from an insider's point of view. Now, I, I don't write, but I edit, and so we're doing a lot of work with training what we call citizen journalists, people who are not necessarily graduated from a journalism school, but we have a real interest in the community and interest in writing about it, the community, objectively, yes. fairly, and creatively. Yes. Uh, good stuff. You know, I, when I read that, and I, it just brought to my mind, do you think this, this citizen journalism, this is kind of a new phenomenon in the last 10 to 15 years? The, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for... I'm not sure if it's new. It's been around for a long time. What is new, and, and it's increasing, um, is the decline of newspapers, is the decline of the good, local yeah, papers nice. and local media. And there's consolidation going on. Uh, and you're losing many, many communities are what we call news deserts. They're losing their local oh, paper. Yeah. And and the websites, they have local websites, but some of them are run by corporations. They're, they're not necessarily hyper-local. And, and I think that's a real great loss. I've worked in a lot of small papers. I mean, my first professional job was in a small weekly paper in Shelbina, Missouri. Missouri, as we used to call it, uh, but it was a very vital part of the community. I felt I was playing a really, ro a real necessary role, and I think that uh, Neighborhood View, in its own way, is trying to help with uh, that kind of coverage. I mean, there are other media in Malden. I'm not saying uh, that we're the only one, but and we don't have the um, capability of a daily newspaper. Right. But what we have is an ability to really talk about issues. As I say, fairly and objectively, from an insider's point of view, and uh, I know that's one of our goals is to is to do that um, on a regular basis. Fantastic! Yeah, we actually had a guest on uh, last month who who wrote an article uh, 
that used to be for the Malden Advocate, and mm -hmm. now it's just, uh, no, no, it used to be for the Malden Observer. Okay, yeah. Uh, and now it's just to the Advocate. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's losses across the board. There's a loss and a loss of competition, and competition yeah. kept people sharp. So, uh, I mean, the whole the whole problem with news media, so that's something I think about all the time. Mm. Uh, I think about it a lot. And, and can the online world, the online, really supplant that old... Uh, paper, newspaper. I mean, I mean, young people and a lot of older people are not reading newspapers anymore, so, but but they want news. They want information, and they want uh, it to be presented in a way that they can grasp, that's readily accessible. Um, there's some question, will they pay for it? That's the real issue. Yes, um, yeah. But and, and if we can come up with new models. I mean, the advertising model used to support that kind of journalism. The advertising model is... is cracking. It's no longer as viable as it used to be. Well, and that's the question that comes to my mind, because I, am, am I a dinosaur's print media? <laughs> I like the Sunday Globe, the Sports Globe. Right, right. I, prefer I get a paper paper every to, day. To, yeah. to yeah. read a book in my hands as right. opposed to a tablet. And I know the younger generation grew up uh, differently, and, yeah. and maybe that's just a new way of doing things. But uh, I'd like to think um, we're not extinct. I, I think there are a lot of readers, and, you know, I take the tea a lot, and, yes, a lot of people are on their phones, but I see people reading books. I see people, in fact, I saw the conductor on the train the other day sat down and between stops was reading a regular book, and I thought, that's very cool. And, um, yes. and you know, I've run into people, and then the uh, just to put it, might as well jump into the plug, but the Boston Book Festival, okay. uh, where it's in October, where I'm going to appear, but I've been a supporter of it for many years. But if you go to the Boston Book Festival, you will be just enthralled with a number of people coming to hear about books, buying books, talking about books, thinking about books. Yes, some of them may be delivered on, on um, tablets, mm -hmm. but there really still is an interest in that, in that hard copy, and there is an interest in hearing a story, a narrative. Yes, um, yeah. and, and, and young people, too. I mean, it's old and young. So I, every time I've gone to that festival, I've always been... Um, and heart heartened by the world because I think we are people say we don't read I don't think that's true I think we are reading but we're reading different things and in different ways great I feel much better about <laughs> turning into then a my dinosaur my job is done <laughs> yes um, no good stuff um, so anyways this is your eighth book correct yeah yes and yeah. Uh, I had to ask um, it, uh, all the books pertain to some facet of Boston history that's right correct? that's right yeah I've just I've, I've I'm not a native of Boston I I I have to admit, first off, I've only lived here about 30 years. Uh, and But when I came here as a journalist, I first came here to work for the Associated Press, and then I worked for the Tab Newspapers and the Boston Herald. Yep. And I just became fascinated with the different stories uh, I would hear about Boston, particularly the, the past, particularly the past we don't always hear about. And we know about the revolutionaries, and we know right. about the Puritans and other things, but there's a whole layer of other stories about Boston that uh, once I started getting into fire books, for example, that was my first book, Boston on Fire, mm -hmm. I started really, there was a lot of ramifications of that. And I realized that telling a story about history is not a straight line. It goes in different directions. Like Boston on Fire, there were stories about um, not only the early fires, but the the fire of, of a convent in Charlestown. What was Charlestown? That was Somerville, which was an anti-Catholic um, act of terrorism, really. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow, in Boston? This is really... So that got me very interested. Um, the arson rings uh, in the 1970s and 1980s are fa another fascinating story, and that's social issues and politics. It's not just disaster. It has a, has a longer history. So every almost every one of my books has a thread that leads to another book that you pick up. Like, you know, I wrote on the Coconut Grove fire. Yes. Um, which is, in 1942, a devastating fire. And um, I'm, and incidentally, I'm updating my book that I wrote in 2005. I'm updating it and putting out a whole new edition in which I contradict some of the things I said in that book because I found out more information, and I'm exploding some myths. But there's a character in that book um, uh, a guy named Charles Solomon or King Solomon who was a mobster and he was an owner of the Coconut Grove and he, he died in a hail of bullets saying the dirty rats they got me <laughs> or at least that's what the newspaper said 
but there was a direct <laughs> relative of James K. Right, yes, exactly. It's fine. You know, I have no idea if that's uh, that's what the newspapers say. So, uh, okay. you know, it's true. But there's a direct line to him to a book that I did with uh, Beverly Ford on the the Boston Mob Guide, and to Whitey Bulger and to that crowd, okay. that grain grain thing. Sure. And then I did a book on called Drinking Boston. Yes. Which mm-hmm. which was a history of the city and the spirits, but it was the first look at prohibition. In Boston, what was we? We think of prohibition. We think of Chicago, and we think of New York and speakeasies and things like that. But there was quite a happening speakeasy uh, society here in Boston. And again, a lot of ramifications, a lot of uh, really interesting stories about Boston during that fairly long period in which you couldn't legally right. buy a drink. Right. Um, that's interesting because. As you said, your first book had to do with different fires. Right. And so um, I was going to ask you, and you kind of answered it, uh, uh, you circled back, you're taking a deeper dive in particular, because mm-hmm. this was mentioned, the mm-hmm. Great Boston mm-hmm. Fire, mm-hmm. right? So what led you to... Because I was always fascinated by this fire, and I did a chapter on this, on the, on the, on the Great Boston Fire, and I always felt there was more to it. Uh, the last really um, full-fledged sort of book on the fire was in uh, 1972, on the 100th anniversary. It was put out by mm-hmm. the Boston Globe, and there was kind of a Boston Globe magazine supplement. And I thought, but this is, there's a lot more to this fire. And I started looking into it, and, and indeed I was able to find more sources that were not available even in, in, even in 1972 because we have this thing called the Internet now. Yeah. And you can search... <laughs> Information Like, if you hold up the back of the book, there's a quote from Louisa May Alcott. Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, was a witness to the Great Boston Fire. She's a personal hero of mine. And I, I, I happened that. to run across um, her a, a comment by her that I went to the Boston Glo- Library. And by the way, students, you do have to do things in libraries. It's not all on the Internet. But I found that she had quite an elaborate story about witnessing this fire plus she references a short story that she wrote about the fire and then I was able to find that short story about the fire so I felt that it it opened up more avenues and we can talk about the history of the fire but one more thing about why I wanted to get back into it was this aspect of the horse flu Mm. was always kind of mentioned in relation to the fire oh the horses got sick and that's why there was delay and I said, well, I'd like to look into that a little more, a little bit more. And as I went into that sort of side road, I discovered a whole other avenue of information about society and horses and, I'll say the word pandemics, or in this case, it was yes. a horse I, pandemic. Yes, I and, saw that analogy. Yeah, yeah. and uh, how, how it was spread. And uh, again, it, 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 it tells a fuller story. I mean, you know, history... History is never dead. You know, it's, history is never past. It's, it's never dead. It's not even past. It's Faulkner. I just, bought, I bought, I just butchered that quote, by the way. <laughs> totally butchered that quote. But, That's okay. But, but the idea is that you could always go back and look at things from a fresh angle and find new insights. Yeah. Uh, I, so you're probably going to be delving into some of your other works and finding more. Finding more uh, stuff, yes. Um, this is true. Interesting that you, uh, and I wanted to get a couple of chapters jumped out at me, mm-hmm. and the, the impact of the horse flu, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I, I never heard, the, the, it was so educational for yeah. me, epizootic. Epizootic, yeah. <laughs> Talk about Isn't a epi- word I've never I know, I know. even seen before. Right. Um, but you can't help but think, just when you see pandemic or epidemic and think of our current times, mm-hmm. and um, you tied a little bit into that, but... Coincidence, uh, bad luck, uh, <laughs> all of that. All of that, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what was interesting about that f- fire, and I'll just in context. First of all, you have to understand in this 1872, in that time, that we were run on horsepower, literal yeah. horsepower. Excellent. And we had there were there were trains and there were, you know locomotive engines, but everything else was by horse. So to have something that that uh, mysterious horse flu that started in Canada and spread over the years' time across the United States and going from town to town, and horses would be fine, and they get sick. Now, it didn't kill them necessarily, but it made them too sick to work. So they, so it just spread across. And this is before germ theory. This is before That's they right. even knew there were things called germs or viruses. They couldn't figure out what it was. 
and they they and because there was a delay in the symptoms showing up it got it was spread now we know that now right with right. the pandemic right and the and horses were transported by trains and some people have looked at the train uh, maps of trains across the country and mapped it to outbreaks yes. of the horse flu yeah uh, then the, the thing that's so mysterious about this is that it, when it was over, it has never returned. Never returned. And the question is, is it because the horses develop immunity or by in another 20 years we quit using horses? So right. it's never came back. So, right. so we still don't know exactly what was the pathogen that caused this problem. Now, now how it plays into the Great Boston Fire is that, it, that at this time, uh, first of all, Boston was in great danger of fire. Um, the fire chief engineer, or the fire chief, was very concerned that the downtown area of Boston was sitting on a tinderbox. That because of the tall buildings, because of something called the mansard roof, and because that the area had grown too fast, and the infra the safety infrastructure, the water mains. Mm -hmm were not adequate. They were small because it had been a residential area and they needed bigger water mains to get more water to put out the fires. So Damrell warned and warned and warned that Boston could go up in flames. He told John us, S. Damrell, who John, was the chief? Fire chief. Fire yeah, chief. Fire yep. chief. We didn't call him chiefs, but that's right. nobody. And he ran engineer, the fire department. Yes. And, so he, and, and, and then in 1871, the great Chicago fire broke mm. out. And Damrell went to Chicago to see firsthand what was going on. And he came back saying, this could happen here. And he went to the city council and said, we've got to do so. We've got to be prepared because the same con some of the same conditions that fueled in Chicago exist in this city, and we've got to be prepared for it. So like many things, he was ignored for the most part. He was told, ah, you're exaggerating yeah. things that can't happen yeah. here. We got a great – they did have a great fire department, and, and he, was, he was told he was worrying too much, you know. And we've seen this play out. Sure. Um, but um, in October, the horses fell sick all over the city, and including the fire, fire, the fire horses. Now, wow. horses dragged fire engines, the steam fire engines that were used to put out fires. And basically, they dragged these, these machines. They were stoked with coal or fuel, created pressure, and they were able to get streams of water on the tops of buildings or as far as they could. And the horses were specially trained. These are these are horses that would could run toward a fire, right. that would stand there with sparks Incredible. and noise. Um, when the fire alarms went off, when the bells rang in the fire stations, they would run to their stations. The halters would drop down, and they would go out. So they these were these were um, really well trained special special animals, and the firefighters had great affection for them, um, and they were all sick. And, Unbelievable. And Darren was going, this is not a good situation <laughs> because men can drag the engines, yes, and they, which they used to do. We could drag it, but that will delay things. So we've got to set up a system. So I set up a system so when a certain alarms went off, only this many um, engines would respond because they didn't, they didn't want everybody going to the same fire. They, that would leave other parts of the city unprotected. So we had this elaborate system. And it seemed to be working yeah. until it didn't. Um, and that was on uh, the night of uh, November 9th when a fire was seen in a building on um, Summer, Kingston Summer Street in right. the down, what we call downtown crossing or the downtown area. And people are always saying, well, how did the fire start? Well, we think it was in the basement of this building. But that's not the right question to ask. Because fires start all the time. Sure. All, but not all of them turn into this huge conflagration that spread relentlessly over the city, incinerating 60 acres, um, 775 buildings, oh. and causing what today would be $1.6 billion in damage. I mean, it did an immense amount of destruction. And it could not be stopped. I mean, the firemen... Despite the problem with the horses, they dragged their. They were on the scene pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of delay. Sure. It's a little bit of delay and a lot of delay in getting a number of people. So that that played a role, but the problem was they couldn't get enough water high enough on the place where the where the um, fire started. The fire spread from roof to roof, 
these mansard, these wooden mansard roofs that they we put couldn't on. get at it. Yeah, they couldn't get couldn't get at it. And some of the images in my book show the streams of water going up, but they're not hitting the top. And the best way to get uh, if we, to get water in a fire, it's better to have it top down. That helps to put out the fire. So it just kept spreading and spreading, and Damerel called for help from all over New England right. and all over the area. In fact, that's why we know the Malden uh, Fire Department came. Here's uh, the Malden connection. Malden connection. We've all Malden, been waiting for the it. The Malden Fire Department came, and in the process lost one of their men, a, a yeah. man in one, uh, uh, Walter Twomby, I think, uh, from hose, uh, hose number two, I think it was. It was yeah, Sheridan Hose Two. They used to name their their fire truck fire engines or companies mm -hmm. uh he lost his life another man was injured and but but people from all over this area came to this fire and also from connecticut maine new hampshire came down because the fire just spread almost re relentlessly for yeah. about uh 12 hours and part of that problem was the way it jumped streets it was so hot it generated its own wind and it would jump streets or barriers. Um, people called it a hurricane of fire. Horrifying. A yeah. fire fiend. Yeah. Um, and it was finally put out. It took by Sunday. It started on a, on a on Friday. It was finally out by Sunday. It took a while. Um, and only by concerted efforts that were they able to mass the people. Because part of the problem was the water would run out. Yeah. Because there wasn't enough water. So they'd get in position, they'd get their water on it, they were doing well, and then the water would run out. And then they'd have to regroup and and uh, if I recall there were the problem with the gas too. That oh was, yes. Uh, kind <laughs> of actually they, they, they thought they had it under control and it and it had a the fiend yeah. had a second life. Had a second uh, life because yeah. of the gas. So right. part again, the part of the problem was that there was a the the city had switched from from um candles and and fire fire as light to gas lights in other words there was gas being pumped into a lot of buildings and that is your gas light you turn right, on right. you can still see a lot of the fixtures of those in a lot of places the trouble was the gas could not be turned off block by block it had to be turned off at the main headquarters so the fire is happening and the gas is flowing and it is igniting and it's hard to and and it was even ignited by um, some efforts to create fire blocks. For example, people would, the firefighters and other people, it's a whole controversy about this, yes. blew up buildings mm. with dynamite. But if the gas kept flowing, it would just keep, keep the, the fire, the fire, um, fire would not go out. Well, in the, the, the uh you know, the hearings or the investigation after that was a controversial aspect uh, mm -hmm. that Damrell himself said regretted gave the okay right, right. to do this because some people who were not trained to do it or, or were kind of just doing it haphazardly uh, may have, like you said, reignited the fire. Re reignited the fire. And a lot of these people were just determined to do something, so they felt they had to blow things up. I, I think I think there was a... <laughs> Everybody <laughs> likes to blow things yeah, up. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. I... Actually, I think that was part of it. I think we were like, oh, let's blow it up. Yeah. Um, but seriously, there, there were people who went a little crazy, and Darryl just said, you, you blow up anything else, I'm going to have you arrested, because it just got out of control. But the fire was so big, and there was this feeling of frustration that Damerel couldn't get under control. And he was having trouble with it. Sure. The thing was, he had warned about this very scenario. I mean, I, I can just picture him seeing this fire and thinking, this is it. This is what I've been worried about. Yeah. And yes. But he didn't dwell on it. He just got to work. He, he did everything he could. He was told, he was even told to stand back and be more of a general and let other people fight. And he said, nope, nope, my place is right on the front lines. Right. Front lines with his men. Right. Um, again, so many of those those things came up as they do. You mm -hmm. know, you're not in the middle of it. Uh, I thought one telling, uh, um, I guess, uh, in favor of Damrell was the people who worked with him, the people uh, who knew him, the firefighters under him, all stood by him and exactly. said he was. You know, because there was people trying to say he was out of control, he was insane, and there was, and he was. Uh, but I think the testimony from his own people. Uh, that he was cool as a cucumber right. and he was a leader and he was in there. Now, the criticism that uh, tactically there should have been a headquarters, I just don't, I mean, looking at it, looking back at it, I, I just don't think it was, it was something that he could have done. At well, that it's interesting because I, I, I took those criticisms seriously and I talked to Paul Christian, who was a former uh, fire 
chief and fire yes. commissioner in Boston, and he has studied this fire. He studied Damrell. He does see where there are errors made, sure. but he does not fault Damrell at all. He feels that he did the right thing. He felt that he was right to be on the front lines, um, that the real problem came that there was a it was there was a delay in sending the alarm, and that was because of the nature of fire alarms in Boston at the time. There was a, a fire alarm system that was a telegraph system. Right. Uh, in box, they were kept in. You, there were boxes, and you would open the box and turn the crank, and it would send a, an alarm. But those boxes were locked because they didn't want false alarms. So there right. was a delay. There was right. a delay in sending the alarms for the, on the initial part. Uh, but but Christian um, uh, Paul, we had several conversations about this, and he he really felt that that the, the Daniel did the best job he could and did a fine job in fighting the fire. Um, the, the, the proof of that is in what Damrell did after the fire. Yes. Yeah. He was hauled before the commission. He was blamed. He he got the fire department was he got reelected. He was elected reelected, but then they reorganized the fire department. He says that's it. I'm out of here. Um, but he came became he took on the position of building inspector, a new kind of a new position for yes. Boston, and he was there for the next 25 years fighting fires in a different way in terms of trying to make sure that buildings were built. Uh, more safely with better materials, um, and then he worked with creating what would become the Uniform Building Code. He d he died before it went into effect, but he worked with um, groups to try to say, okay, let's build these things the same way and make them safer. He started an organization called the International Association of Fire Fire Chiefs, which is still going on today, still around, um, and so he really devoted himself. To right. service, he was he was a man who truly believed in service to one's fellow fellow persons. Well, I think that's that's the as you say the, the proof is in the pudding. That's his legacy, right? That's his legacy. Because you can't put a number or a value on you know he changed the codes. He changed how you you, you protect buildings from fires that are still in place today. Right. Right. So, and, and uh, what, I mean, we still have fires, obviously, yes. all the time. Uh, the big cities, these big city fires generally don't happen because of these things that have been put into place. Exactly. Correct? We don't have the big conflagrations that we did, right. that we used to have. Right. Um, in the 19th century, at this time, there were a lot of cities. It was in Chicago, uh, Baltimore, and other cities were having huge fires this time. In fact, someone who did a documentary on the Great Boston Fire, Bruce, Bruce Twickler, who this Damrell's, he called it Damrell's Fire. Yes. Really excellent documentary. Um, it, it appears on PBS every now and then, but but he calls Damrell the man who saved the American cities from burning up because yep. he, taking that knowledge that he, he acquired, he, he pushed through reforms and other things that helped to stop these um, the fires that, were decimating the cities. It's interesting because there's a parallel to today, to today, and that's in the wildfires that we see, in the, right. what they call the wildland fires, yeah. this interface between uh, uh, human development and, and fires, and, fire, and forest fires. And basically, those forest fires are the equivalent of these 19th century conflagrations in some ways, not in all ways, sure. but, but these huge fires that we have to develop techniques for bringing them under control or making sure they never start to begin with. Yeah. And that's one of the issues that we're facing today. Um, if, you know, in fact, the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, has created what they call an ecosystem of various factors that are involved with fires. It's not one thing. You know, it's not necessarily how it started, it's how it spreads or how fast or what kind of materials there are. And if you apply that ecosystem to the Great Boston Fire, you can see how it, it pings on a lot of the factors that involve regulatory systems, safety preparedness, um, trained workforce. All these aspects are involved with, with this fire. So it so it's kind of has a lesson for today. That's another reason why I wanted to do this, this fire was because I felt it had a lot of ramifications for this day. But one other thing that's a little more cheesy, it's just a little more basic. We love cheesy. Yeah, okay. It it's, was such a great spectacle. If you look at the pictures, and you can go to the Boston Public Library and see on their Flickr site these pictures of picture of the devastation of downtown 
and you look at that and you say, I walk there. I'm there all the time. I shop there. There's where Filene's will be, and there's where, you know, Jordan's was or will be and then disappeared. But it's like right in the heart of downtown, this yeah. huge, it looks like a nuclear wasteland. And there's no trace of it today, no trace. And people have kind of forgotten this fire. And I think that's, we should remember it. I mean, it didn't have a high loss of life. We're very lucky that, yeah. you know, like 11 to 12 firefighters or volunteer fighters were killed. That, and that's a high number. But civilians were maybe 20 to 30. There's actually not a good count. It's, that was not uncommon at this time. We don't know exactly how many people killed. As compared to Chicago, which killed from 250 to 300 people. Very high. Or the Coconut Grove fire, which nearly 500 people died. Sure. But um, it was more expensive per acre because of the concentration of wealth. It burned the wealthiest part of Boston, the commercial area. Well, that yeah, and I was surprised to see because, I mean, I, I'm not a historian, but I, it's it's like an unknown right historical fire, and yet it's I think it was the fifth uh, as far as financial losses of fires. It's one, the the huge, it's one of the largest fires. Yeah, I, I mean, it's I per, and per acre, it was per quite a, per yeah. acre was quite expensive, um, and so I think it's worth repeating. And the thing is too that the firefighters of Boston haven't forgotten this fire. They're very much aware of it. They've they've studied it. They think about it. Um, they're, they're, uh, a fire chief from a while ago, an assistant fire chief, John Vahey, did a whole study of this fire. Um, a while back, he has, he has passed on, but he was fascinated with this fire, widespread, and they, yeah. they looked at the fa factors. So it's a good teaching tool for today. It's yeah. a good historical thing, and it's just a it's a good yarn. I mean, so many people went and looked this fire. I mentioned Louise May Alcott, but um, William Lloyd Garrison, yes. the, the abolitionist, he went out and looked at it. He was a spark. This guy was a spark, and by spark, I mean a guy who liked to go to fires. He was yeah, kind that, of a, that was another thing that fascinated yeah, There's yeah, people yeah. that have this, oh yeah uh, no, as a hobby. Arthur Fiedler the 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 master he was he was a he was a spark. and uh, William L. Garrison talks about getting a panoramic picture of the ruins of Boston from his son as a present and being very delighted by it um, but <laughs> That's um, right. but uh, the, the other people um, uh, um, Alexander Graham Bell. Yes. Very funny story. He went out. He felt fight the fire. He was a young guy this time. And he wrote a whole account of it, which he sent to the Globe. But as far as I can tell, the Globe never published it. And his account is lost to history. And I'm so upset about that. I did some work to try to find that. But I just thought, darn editors, don't they realize they should be publishing this kind of thing, yeah. having been rejected myself. So Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., another dignitary. Holmes, very that was, much, and uh, he was very much involved with he wrote a poem about the fire. He witnessed the fire. The fire. Yeah. yeah. And so he he was very much a Mercurian Ives did a number of images of the fire. Um, so it was very it was ve it was a very big deal at the time. It was headlines all around the country. All around the country paid attention to it. Um, but like I say, it's not as well known today. Well, uh, it's going to be after okay. uh, we <laughs> keep. We're about halfway through the show, so it's okay. a good time to. Uh, Encourage the folks to go get this book, The Great Boston Fire, The Inferno That Nearly Incinerated the City, and how can they get it? Um, they can get it through, uh, well, there's many, in many ways, obviously online sellers, but I would recommend that people, A, one, either go to your local independent bookstore and order it. If they don't have it, they can order it. Sure. Be there. Uh, you can go to the library. It, it should be at local libraries. And, again, if they don't have it, it I, I encourage people to go into libraries. You can get it there. And, of course, it's on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and all the big sites as well. And they can go to your website and as they well? Go, uh, not so much. Not I, don't so much. Sell, I don't sell it through my website okay. so much, but they can find places. But um, if people are interested in hearing more about it or if they're interested in getting a signed copy of it, uh, I'm going to be at the uh, Boston Book Festival in October 29th. I don't have the time, but sometime there. And then in November, which is the anniversary of the fire, the 150th anniversary of the fire, wow. uh, I will be at the, the Boston Public Library. I will be at the uh, Boston Historical Society for a talk and at the Waterworks Museum, uh, which is in uh, Chestnut Hill. Mm -hmm. Really a great, if I can plug that museum, it's a great uh, museum on a very interesting part of Boston history. They have an exhibit up about the fire, which is good, and I'm going to give a talk 
there. And you can get those details from my, I'll have that all up on my website. Okay. So if you just go sure. to stephaniesherlock.com, you can find out. And then I'm talking a lot, I think I've got an appearance in, in Jamaica Plain and Charlestown and different places. Again, these will all be on my website. But if you want to get a copy of the book, and if you want to hear a lecture in which I'm sh I show images, it's kind of a multimedia presentation. I show images from the fire. I go into some of oh, the stories. Fantastic. So yeah. that's that's yeah. The, it's a very visual visual. Uh, there's a lot of visual storytelling here that I do. Incredible. Uh, good stuff. So we're not done. The second half of the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. We can talk about uh, the next book or other books or. We, uh, can, but I, we can, <laughs> but I, I, fires, I actually yeah. want to go back, I okay, go back sure. a little, okay. delve a little deeper in this. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Dim Rell. Yeah. Now, he was sounding the alarm before the Chicago fire, right? Before the Chicago fire, yes. He was, he, see, his background was he was a carpenter and builder. So he knew how to build things well, and he knew how to build things safely. And he was concerned that a lot of this new construction that was going up in the the commercial with the down, what's what we call downtown, the commercial area, was going was going up too fast, and they weren't taking care in terms of building right. it. He was also concerned that the buildings were very close together, and there wasn't fire protection between the buildings. But he was most concerned about this thing called the mansard roof, which is an architectural embellishment. It was actually from France uh, from years ago, and they were being built in Boston, but they're made out of wood. And he even called them like elevated lumber yards oh. because of the way that they could spread fire. So he was warning about about that. And he also he also covered uncovered encountered a thing that we have today, which is the NIMBY, not in my neighborhood. Um, one thing he wanted to do was put more fire stations or fire houses in the downtown area because, yeah. you know, these engines are being drawn by horses. Right. Um, they they go very fast, but the the faster they can get to the fire, the quicker they can put water on a fire, the better it's going to be, the more likely they can put it out. And he felt there weren't enough fire houses or stations in that downtown area. There yeah. were like six or seven. He wanted to see more of them uh, because this was a very dangerous area from his perspective. And he was rebuffed several times in, in, way, in, in, in efforts to put in uh, more fire stations in the downtown. He was told, uh, "Don't, don't magnify the wants of your department right, so much." Right, right. You hear that all the time. Right, right. And and and, there, and things like this happen today, like fire hydrants. People don't want fire hydrants unless you're at your house that's on fire. Right. Um, and in fact, there was a hydrant in front of a, a, a building, the pilot, a new building that was built to house the pilot, which is the Catholic. Another newspaper. Catholic, yeah, Catholic newspaper there. there. Yep. Patrick Donahue, very interesting, another very interesting character, sure. who published that, and apparently had he had the um, hydrant move. Now we don't know why. We don't know why. We do, and it could could be for any reasons. But during the the fire, um, uh, Donahue was actually at a press dinner. A press dinner. Uh, and in the audience was a guy named Sylvester Baxter, who I'll talk about in a minute. Yes. But Donahue was singing the Star-Spangled Banner because he was known for his enthusiastic rendition of the national anthem, if not skill. But when, as soon as he finished, someone rushed up to him and said, you know, basically, the pilot's on, the building's on fire. So he ran out, and he, he was there to watch it burn to the ground. You know, um, that was one of the buildings yeah, that went yeah. down. Now, at that press um, dinner, which was the night the night of the fire, was a, was a gentleman named Sylvester Baxter. And he was a young man. He was working as a reporter, I think, for the advertiser at that point. He worked for a number of newspapers in Boston. There were a lot of newspapers in those days, and they merged and split up. It was kind of hard to keep them all straight. But he and a, a companion went out to cover this for, for, the, for the paper, and they ran around the city that night, gathering information and watching the city burn. Yeah. Uh, it was profoundly affecting of him. He, and he wrote this really great uh, story about it. Uh, and he was even he was even in the newspaper office and typing, uh, trying to get out his stories. When the call came in on Sunday night, the fire had broken out again. And he almost literally panicked because, you know, he had seen the destruction. But it was put out. And he wrote up this this story about it. But but 
Baxter went on to do some really interesting things. He was got involved with urban planning and, and particularly in bringing green space into the Boston area. And so he would, he and um, Charles Elliott, who was the son of the, the Harvard uh, president, uh, worked. Had, they both worked with um, Olmsted. Um, I forget. He has another. He has another three names. Olmsted, whatever. Olmsted. Yep, yep. Um, in pushing for the Middlesex Fell, so he was trying to preserve this area and make sure it's a green space within an, within the urban area, and to have that as part of the of a city experience to have a green space there. And you can't help but think that he must have been influenced by watching this horrible fire that burned so much because he was very much involved with making cities greener and better living. Sure. And he eventually settled in Malden. So he was very involved with Malden. And um, I, I don't know that much about him. So if there's any viewers here who know a little bit about Sylvester ba Baxter because he apparently, according to one source, he owned um, a newspaper here and the um, also did, yeah, the uh, he did a bunch of traveling books. He did something. He edited the Malden News, apparently. I oh. haven't been able to confirm this. Again, it, it was a great sidelight of the story, but I wasn't able to pursue it. But if anyone knows about that, go to my website, contact me. Um, and then uh, I found a reference to, in 1956, the Malden Garden Club dedicated a Sylvester Baxter Delta in Malden. Wow. To preserve. Mm. And apparently there was a stone for that. That got lost and then was found later, uh, the memorial plaque found later. Now, there is a Sylvester Baxter Park in Somerville along part of the new assembly um, square, that huge development that's gone on there. It's just on the Mystic River, right across the Mystic River. Same individual? S same individual. Yeah. It must be the same. Yeah. Because, and so I found a lot of references to Baxter over the over the course of internet searches, and you have sure. to be really careful with internet searches, what's through. <laughs> but but um, I have a lot of stuff in his own words, and um, he died actually in Puerto Rico. Uh, he was single. Uh, he had a beloved friend. I'll leave it like that. But um, he, uh, he had quite a life. He was a really interesting guy, and again, these are one of these stories that you find, about, that you find out, but Sylvester Baxter, uh, I just, I almost felt him as a presence when I was writing because I used his words so much. I just kept thinking, Sylvester, I, I know what you wrote, but what were you thinking? What were you feeling? You, you, you climbed up to the top of the, the Parker house, I think. I was looking out over the fire, and I was trying to imagine what he must have felt, you know, watching his city burn. I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, right. if, if you loved Boston, as most of the people here did, and they thought of it as the Athens of America— and you're seeing a hurricane of fire literally devour the city, um, you just can't help but believe that it, w it would have a profound effect Absolutely. on you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and again, if, if we have the Middlesex... Uh, fells, to fells to thank for, you know, uh, how many I mean, of us enjoy that? Exactly, he uh, left his mark. And again, we don't really know about him. I mean, I think you might, you might hear of, you know, um, Olmsted, uh, even Charles Eliot is well known, but Baxter was very much involved, and he produced a lot of books, wrote a lot of things that are kind of out of print today, probably the fate of a lot of his writers, but, but um, he, he was just one of those, he's one of those characters that came in, and again, this was new, you might say, hey, the Globe did this thing in 1972, what, what is there new to add to this fire? And his account sure. was a new, a new thing, and again, it was in a scrapbook somewhere. It's not you can't find it online. It was wow. a scrapbook somewhere that somebody that the Athenaeum, Boston Athenaeum, had saved, and um, it was an amazing document. It was just amazing the acuity of the way he remembered things. I mean, he was a journalist. He was a reporter. So you 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 could dismiss. I mean, I knew I haven't been having been a reporter. I've been a writer. I kind of knew where his head was and how he wrote and how how you might approach things. So, That's so interesting. Yeah, he's a and who of, knows with the you know who knows a family member family or family member someone a else friend out Sylvester there Baxter. Descending. Tell me what you know about him and his connection with Malden. Uh, yeah, you know, and then uh, then we'll find out where he lived in Malden. Right? Yeah, and find out. Yeah, <laughs> then it'll be great, and maybe I could write something for a neighborhood view on this. Oh, fantastic! So that See would that? be that would be. I've thought about that. I thought you know would it be to write. To write on on something like that, but um, let's let's see if anything, let's ever see if anything comes up.
That's good That's stuff. Yeah. Um, well, if if we and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. If I go back to Damrell and sure. and I, and, and um, we spoke uh, before we went on the air tonight a little bit about the book, which I enjoyed so much. Thank I you. recommend it to everyone out there. It's a great summer read. We're still in the summer. Take it to the beach. It's a hot read. It's a hot read. <laughs> the Great Boston Fire. Um, how you open the book with the prologue and you start mm-hmm. with the, the – he's on the hot seat. Right, uh, How many right. bad puns can we <laughs> – We can <laughs> – we, we got a few more left. Um, but I just, I just found it – he was the fascinating character. In the end, he's vindicated no doubt with his legacy of right. what he did for building safety and fire safety um, that, that lasts today. But I just – your thoughts. Did, did you find him uh, – a sympathetic character. We said was he a hero or the villain? They're trying to scapegoating is is pretty popular right, when right, things right. like this happen. So your Very thoughts on him as an individual? I know you spoke of the uh, mm. that fight, the current former fire chief in yes, Boston. Yeah, Paul Christian. Would look. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Demerol is an interesting character, and it's funny that you talk about the prologue because um, let's talk about writing the writing technique. And one yes. of the techniques of writing history is that you want to bring it alive. You want to use the techniques. Of fiction to tell a nonfiction story, character, place, narrative, description. Um, in fact, I am teaching a class. I feel like on I'm that. in a neighborhood yes, journalism yes. class. <laughs> I'm teaching a class on for this free. at the Hollyhocks Writers Conference, which is at in kind of towards the end of September. I'll put something on my website again. But I'm teaching on this. But I think this is something that a lot of writers do, a lot of nonfiction writers do. A lot of pitfalls. And because you can only you can only press so far with your imagination, and you have to stick to what you know. But in this case, I read very carefully his word-for-word testimony in front of a Damerel's testimony in front of a commission that was formed after the fire to basically say, what happened? Who's to blame? What can we do to make things better? It's, this is Boston. We do. We're very good at that. You know, the horse is out of the barn, and we're going to whatever the cows are out and another makes mouth. horses again um, horses and cows anyway but um but i had this testimony and so i had it i sit there let me imagine what it was like for this guy who was still hurting his throat was so sore it was only a few days after the fire. he That's was right. probably very still very sick about it he was still feeling wretched over the loss of some of his firefighters um and he's being called to testify to say what happened and his words are extraordinarily measured he seems very much in control of himself. Uh, you know, he's heard all the rumors that he went mad that night. He heard the he and that he. I mean, the people were reporting he, the the fire chief has gone mad and he's been taken to a hospital. And I don't even know where that came from. But right, right. but I'm just trying to. I was trying to picture him walking in, what he was probably wearing, and how he would present himself to uh, this commission and what he would say and how he'd say it. Now I. I have, luckily, I have a transcript of things he said to the city council right after the Chicago fire and before the Great Boston fire. And so I could compare the language. So I could see that he had a certain way of speaking. Um, He was self-taught, too. He He was a very, you know, he came from a, I won't say a poor background, but he certainly wasn't from a wealthy. He was definitely not a Brahmin. So, and, and the, the city was run by Brahmin, the, the rich Brahmin interest yeah. by that, at this point. So I tried to picture him going in there. And the good thing is I had his exact words. So I used that dialogue. So I was able to create dialogue that was, I was able to use dialogue that was taken word for word from the actual transcript. So I was able to create something using his own words in that beginning. And so basically I am picturing him in front of the commission and they're saying, how did this start? what happened, why weren't you listened to, and uh, other things like that. I think I truncated a little bit. He was on actually three times. I may have truncated a little bit. But I really felt like I got the feeling of what it was like for him to speak in front of these um, commissioners about that. And then it's interesting because you look at the other testimony because I was compare it to the other testimony. The other testimony was more heated, more fiery, um, more bomba- bombastic. Um, there was um, General, the Postmaster General William Burt. I I had first thought of him as a villain of this, but I grew to really like Burt. I thought he was. Well, he a, did defend him, really. He didn't did. He? You yeah. know, I, I afterwards he did. He was the one who was pushing for uh, gunpowder. 
Right. And he was right. kind of like, let's, we got to do something. Let's right. pull things up. Which, by <laughs> so, the way, it was a, a very effective tactic, which I didn't know, to, uh -huh. to stop a fire's It could spread. be. Could it be. could be. Well, but, this was a, well, they still do yeah. fire breaks today. They still fire use breaks, that to right. Basically, they'll burn a strip. Right. And so you, the fire won't, it has nothing to burn, so it'll be stopped. Right. But this fire was just too hot. It didn't, it didn't work. Yeah. But, but Bert, um, was, was he, he, um, he, he defended Damerel, and he was, again, he was one of these people who was on scene. He was busy saving the U.S. mail. He took that, you know, yeah, he moved yeah. it once, he moved it again. He wanted to make sure that not one letter was lost to the fire. And he, he, was, he had a very colorful history after that, um, and he died fairly young. So I, I grew to like Bert. And what's, <laughs> what's really sad, and I think we have a picture of it in the, in the book, is that magnificent post office that he had built. That was saved from the fire. It was they got burned, but he built it. This beautiful building was torn down in the '70s in kind of that urban renewal oh, stage. So right. boom, it's gone. Right. You know, and, and now it's Post Office Square right. there. Um, and so it's sad to see that that magnificent structure that he was so proud of. Um, Another contributing later on. factor why this this becomes forgotten. When yeah, things, the things are yeah. things that things are torn. In fact, there used to be a, a plaque near the beginning of the fire. I don't see it there now. And there used to be some plaques around the air. I don't see them. Um, there is interesting one thing that people aren't aware of, but box fifty two. Box fifty two is a very important box. The boxes of these are the fire alarm boxes that were all over Boston. And when you pull the mechanism was when you. This was before electricity, but it was they had a telegraph system. So it sent a signal to the fire alarm headquarters about where the box was, and then the church, then the fire alarm headquarters would have a connection to all the bells, the church bells, or what they call the public bells in right, Boston. Right. So, for example, if a fire if a fire box was pulled at uh, 52, the church bells would be ringing five two five two. So, so the so firefighters knew would know where to go, because otherwise, how do you know where to go? You know, people screaming fire. Right, you know. right. So, and and the firefighters at the time uh, memorized. Uh, they knew where every back box was. So when Damrell heard the bells ring five two, he knew exactly where it was, and he ran from his home on Beacon Hill. On Beacon Hill, he literally just ran to Downtown Crossing. He talks about it and. And I thought that's very interesting. So I went and ran Incredible. the same route to see if he could do it. And so I still so I did it. You did. Mm -hmm. I ran the yeah. same route um, I, to see how fast I could do it. And he did it faster. Wow. <laughs> but they, I had I was I had a, I would have knocked over pedestrians and I had to dodge cars and things he didn't have to dodge in those days. But um, but the box fifty two um, is you know they've renumbered it. But it, you, there is still a box fifty two in Boston on that very spot. You'll see the box. It's it's got a special light on top of it, and you see the words. You see fifty two, the numerals on it. Mm. It's actually not fifty two. It's something else. But they keep it as a kind of memorial. And then there was something um, called the Box Fifty Two Society, or association. I, I, box Fifty Two, mm. and that um, kept has kept alive um, the memory of this fire and other fire issues and fire um, memorials. I mean, there's been a lot of fires in Boston. A lot of people have died. A mm. lot of firefighters have died. Yep. And many of these organizations, like the Boston Fire Historical Society, I was I was kind of a founding member of that. Um, I was on the board for a number of years, but, it, but they maintain an incredible website, which is a resource for people all over the country seeking information about uh, oh. Boston history. So uh, bostonfirehistory.org, you know, go there. You'll, you'll like it. Um, and uh, so there are these groups that I try to honor who are trying to keep this history alive uh, because there are lessons that we, we need to Absolutely. know. I mean, I think the Absolutely. lessons from the uh, horse epidemic are apropos to the pandemic. I mean, we, we didn't know how, the, at first, you remember, we, we didn't know how it was spread. It was mm. like, it was touch something, yes. and then it was oh, in the yeah. air, and yeah. then it was here, and, then, and even today it's controversial. Sure. But um, I think we can learn from that, and we can learn from the whistleblowers. I mean, I think I, in the, the beginning, I, I talk about we don't listen to them, the Cassandras, the whistleblowers, the naysayers. Sure. We say it can't happen here, it won't happen here, mm. we don't have to pay attention to that. And then we ignore them until um, a strange light uh, wakes us during the night and we open our door to an inferno. And that's kind of the poetic way I put it's, it there. 
Beautiful. So yeah, um, it's it's interesting. You, if I could make one more point that sure. I, I that stuck with me on the on the horse flu. Um, I love horses. Um, <laughs> and they there was like a, you too. Was there an <laughs> an advocacy born of? Oh uh, yes. Right of right. of animal rights. And, right. Uh, yes, that's. Uh, was it the dumb? Our dumb, dumb friends, our dumb, our dumb friends. friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I thought yeah. was. This is, this is another one of those things that you stumble on. But yes, yes this was the beginning of a sort of society's prevention of cruelty to animals. Right. And so right. there, were, there, was a, there were people who, even before this, were out there complaining about the treatment of, of, to animals. I mean, Black Beauty came out maybe around this time, and that was really a cry for better treatment for horses. Sure. You know, more than just a kid's story. I don't know if you've, so, um, so... A lot of advocates took it upon themselves when they saw sick horses to report that to make sure they weren't worked to death. And there was a newsletter that was put out by uh, the Roger Angel, the guy, the, the gentleman who Angel Memorial Hospital, the famous sure. veterinary, is named for this guy. But oh, he yeah. had a society, and he put out this this um, newsletter called "Our Dumb Friends." Now, again, the word "dumb" has changed, but meaning. Our dumb friends in the fence, they, they cannot speak for themselves. Right. So we are speaking for the animals of the world. So fortunately, a lot of issues of this of this paper is on, are online. And I was able to look through them. And again, I was able to find references. I went to the, the issues that were around the time of the, um, the fire and the epidemic, and I could find some really poignant stories about um, how people were concerned about the welfare of of all animals, but particularly on horses at this time. And so, um, and this was part of the drive to create motorized vehicles. It was not necessarily, they wanted right. to relieve, they re wanted to relieve the, the, the burden on horses. And eventually they did, but that meant there, you know, we have fewer horses in, in the cities today. But, you know, at the time, and, and some people have studied this, but there was, um, there was a greater um, preponderance of farm animals in urban areas, I mean, people kept chickens, for example. There were more chickens kept. I don't know about pigs, but probably there were probably some sort of pigs and stuff kept in the city. And certainly horses and stables were all over the place. So people were more connected with with animals there. And there were um, and there were a great many people who were concerned about the welfare of of working animals, farm animals, uh, as well as you know pets, cats. Cats and dogs, of course. Of course. And well, I find it incredible because in the crisis, in the craziness, they knew they couldn't couldn't uh, uh, count on the the horses that were sick. Right. And there was there was um, kind of a push to take these green horses right. that were not trained. Yeah. And you know there was a big yeah. They were complaining. They were playing. How come you didn't just take any horses? Right. Well, you can't really well, do that. Well, it would have been disastrous. Yeah. Though. It would. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. I mean, you can't. You can't do that. So very interesting. Yeah. So they couldn't do. It. And 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 Darryl said, look, we tried to get horses. We did try to get horses, and we couldn't. There weren't none to be had. I mean, there's some. You know, you see pictures of horses at the fire. You wonder where they were. Somebody drove. Yeah. I mean, it has history is never neat and tidy. Sure. But um, but it is clear that the horses were sick, and there, I have some, I have some really I must say Harper's Weekly has wonderful illustrations. It was it was before the advent, before you could have photos in newspapers or print. So what they would do is they'd get photos and they'd make these exquisite oh, drawings of lithographs that would go in that they could print in newspapers, and so there were wonderful images of the fire itself. There were drawings. The fiend. The fiend, yeah. yeah, yeah it was in there. fascinating. You gotta and, check that out. Yeah, and then there's some great pictures I'm of the horses. Sorry I didn't have those pictures ready. Yeah, and then there were horses, like there was one great picture of a horse. I think it was by it's not signed, but I think it's by Thomas Nast, the famous cartoonist who brought us the donkey and the the elephant. He was the one who created that dichotomy. Right. But it shows a horse sitting with a blanket and a thermometer or, or something on its head and a very sick horse. And it just looks so pathetic. It's just a real sympathetic view of the poor horse with the flu. Right. And that's how this, this story was told through yes. these illustrations and artists. It's incredible. Well, I can't believe it. We're down to, I think we got about a minute left. Uh, Stephanie, this has okay. been a great pleasure to have well, you thank on. Thank you so much for your questions. These are great. Um, are the book is fantastic, folks. It's called The Great Boston Fire, The Inferno That Nearly Incinerated the City. Please go check it out uh, on, on, go to Amazon or, or anywhere you can buy books. 
Um, or your local bookstore. Your local, local bookstore. Book very, yes. very important. Yeah. Very, very important. Yeah. Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for coming thank on. You. Uh, quickly, if you have some, uh, you're working on a new book. Um, I'm working on a couple new books, but one one book is the uh, a reboot, if you will, of the Coconut Grove fire, uh, and, and um, because there's just more to tell there. And then I'm doing, I'm coordinating another book that involves the Harbor Islands. It's a fun, really sweet book about um, women who went out to the Harbor Island in 1891, spent two weeks there, and left this incredible journal with photographs and illustrations of their experience. So it's, this is a look at women's lives in uh, the 1890s. Well, when you have that out, we'll have you back on. Thank you very Thanks much. again for coming. Malden, that's our show tonight. And I'd like to end with a quote, and I thought I'd borrow from uh, one of her uh, mentors, heroines, Louisa May Alcott, who said, I am not afraid of storms, for I am learning how to sail my ship. God bless Malden. See you next month.